Book of Acts. The Acts is the bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles and the rest of the, the, the New Testament. It's the point where Jesus leaves the, Elvis leaves the building at this point. And uh, the traditional title for the book of Acts is called The Acts of the Apostles, which is a, because it doesn't have a title. When Luke wrote it, he didn't give his work a title. I don't know why. Um, but Tertullian is the one that titled it The Acts of the Apostles, and he did that in 200 AD. And so when you read it, it doesn't quite fit. Yeah, it, it talks about the apostles and their acts, what they did, you know, their. They're incredible deeds that they performed, but it's not about the apostles. The true title of the book should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit because from the very beginning until the end, that's the main character, that's the main theme, that's the main thrust of the book. And, um, and again, it is this, this is linchpin. And there is a, it's kind of a, if you're a reader, it's a good read because it's a, it's a fast-paced type of thing. So if you read it from, from cover to cover, you're, you'll sense that the literature is, um, it's got a rhythm to it. And there's a sense of movement to it. The story has lots of action, lots of movement. Uh, and there, it's, it's just chock full of great nuggets, great little stories. And, it, and, and of course, it talks about the apostles, uh, Paul, of course, Peter, uh, Philip, uh, Philip, Andrew, and, and Simon. And so it's got all the great stuff, all the great stories. Let's just take a look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we'll, we'll start at verse 3. After his suffering, Jesus' is suffering, after his suffering... He showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. Right? Wait on the Lord. He's talking to his disciples, the ones that knew him best. He's reappeared in his resurrected, glorified body. Jesus is kind of hard to keep your thumb on right now because, like, he's teleporting himself all over the country, he's walking through walls. He just shows up at random times, and he sits down, and he eats with you. And again, his message is about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. Whenever we see kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, it's interchangeable. It's the same thing. Wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Oh, my gosh, <clears throat> these idiots don't get it. 
what is the matter with them? They have been living and walking and hanging around the campfire. They have been learning from Jesus. They know the Torah. They've seen him perform miracles and, yes, died and resurrected. When are you going to take your rightful place at the throne and rule the world with power and kick out the Romans? See, they still have this negative mindset, this, this earthly uh, secular mindset that Jesus was going to come in and be Superman, like the supernatural leader that was going to get rid of all the Romans and that they were going to be, you know, the, the dominant superpower in the world. That's their mindset. They, they're still thinking carnally. And Jesus is... I wonder what his real response was. <laughs> this is what the guys wrote down. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And the message, again, is that of the kingdom. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky when he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. They put the, locked themselves in the room and they began to pray. This is just one of the really interesting commentaries about theologians um, is that, you know, good theologians, they, they believe and they're 100% dedicated to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Like, these are the good guys, uh, like Lad. And um, so they, they said, you know what, Paul is right. Like, without the death and the resurrection of the body, without us being able to take part and to, 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 you know, take on the body of Christ, and for us, too, to have the resurrection of the body, the whole thing is a sham. We shouldn't believe in it. We should find ourselves a new religion or just be pagans or something. Because if, if, if Jesus didn't die and resurrect from the dead, it's all meaningless. It's all worthless. It's just a bunch of words if there is no sacrifice, right? And so good theologians, they'll stick to their guns, and they're like, yep, this happened. Like, this literally happened. This was a true historical event. The resurrection of Jesus is true. And then, but they'll, they'll look at the, the ascension of Jesus, and they don't give it any attention. It's like, 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 you know, they'll, they'll rationalize the resurrection, like a dead body that's beaten to a pulp coming alive. But Jesus floating off the earth, well, that maybe didn't happen. Then, then they say this. It's like, you know, they're okay with, you know, taking the, uh, the, the, the resurrection literally, but the ascension, well, they just have problems with it. And I don't, 
this is kind of strange. And again, it gets into our human nature on what we really want to accept and what we, you know, it's like, how do you get your head around this kind of stuff? So we're forced to get our heads around the sacrifice about the resurrection, but like Jesus levitating off the planet and disappearing into the clouds, that's different, but it is so important. The apostles and the disciples and, and all of the, everybody that was following him, maybe even strangers, so they're, they're, they're seeing Jesus teach, and then all of a sudden he just, you know, he says, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then he, and he, just, he just begins to, he's just like taking off. And they're just, you know, the art, the Christian art, they show the, the, the disciples looking up into heaven, and it's all like a holy moment, and you see it on stained glass windows, and they're, you know, they're, they're you know, it's like a deep look. I don't know if it was really like that, though. They're like, oh, my gosh, where is he going? <laughs> no, 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 come back, come back. No, don't float away. Our Savior is floating away. Like this is not, this is not. I'm so there. There's got to be like this, this fear and this. What are you doing, God? What Jesus? Why are you floating away? We went through so much together, and you just proved that you have overcome sin and death, and like now you're just like this balloon, and the guys are just like looking up into heaven, and just like oh, really, Lord? All after all this, you're just gonna float away. You're looking up into heaven. And then these two beings manifest on, you know, around, and they're looking at them. These two angels, powerful. And they're, like, looking at the guys and the gals. <laughs> like, what, what are you guys looking at? And that's literally what's going on. That was the whole purpose. That was their, their whole message, because angels are messengers. And they're like... What are you guys looking at? Why are you standing here looking at the bottom of Jesus' feet? Why are you straining your eyes into heaven? Why are you still up there trying to find him, right? Why are you in this moment that he's floated away? Why are you trying to dis, you know, transcend the moment? Why are you looking up into heaven? Why? Like, this is kind of a, maybe an oxymoron here, but is it possible to have an unhealthy fixation with the bottom of Jesus' feet? To continually just be like, well, Jesus, 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 and never do anything about what he's done for us? Without ever being motivated or they're having this, this sense of urgency that, that you have been graced and then you're just... Standing around, looking in, spacing out. I have a, that's like my major issue, by the way. Like, um, I'm an only child, and I just had to entertain myself. So I have this active imagination. I'm always spacing out. So if you're having a conversation with me, like, well, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm looking over there. Guess what? I'm not with you. I am not with you. I am in another place. I have left my body, and I have this ability to do so. And so I am not present. So if you ever feel like I'm not present, just like, just give me a little, and I'll, I'll wake. 
could you imagine being married to me and the communication <laughs> skills that would be required to live with me? <laughs> Glory, yes. I always thought it was her fault. Hey, ever feel that way? If my spouse would just straighten up everything, it would be fine. Uh, I just think that maybe we spend too much time trying to look and get into heaven when in reality, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, it is here. It is now. It is within you. That's Jesus' message. In Isaiah 6, and when the Oh, let's get into Acts 2. I'm not going to read it, I'll just, because I read it all the time. Acts chapter 2. The guys, they like, all right, we just saw Jesus float away. The angels told us to quit standing around doing nothing. Let's just do what we know how to do. Let's just find a room and let's just begin to pray. And they said they dedicated themselves constantly to prayer in the upper room. And then it describes it this way, the the Holy Spirit pours into the room, and then we don't know exactly what it looked like, but we can probably get the sense or the feeling, and it's just like tongues of fire fell on everybody in the room. And, and then this was a, a, Jerusalem was a happening place. I don't know, it's kind of like it is today, but maybe, but more so, Jerusalem was the Disneyland of its time. You just go there because it's just, it's just the exciting place to be. And again, they don't have amusement parks, they have temples. So you take, we take our pilgrimages to the happiest place on earth. They took their pilgrimages to Jerusalem, and it was a, it was a party, it was fun, it was festive. And at this time... A Pentecost, the celebration that all the Jews were having, everybody was there. There were people from Africa. There were Jews from Africa, of African descent that were there. In Egypt, there were Egyptians. There were Europeans. There were white Jews. There were black Jews. There were Chinese Jews. All the nations in some form were represented in Jerusalem at this festival. And they were all, for some reason, they all kind of congregated around this room, around this apartment, and they witnessed this outpouring of the Holy Spirit into these individuals and as the tongues of, the, the tongues of fire fell on them and it's as if the, there was smoke that filled the room uh, and they began to speak in the divine language. We call it speaking in tongues but this one was even more special because they were speaking everybody else's native language. So they were speaking Chinese, and they were speaking Arabic, and they were speaking Greek, and I don't know, uh, Flemish, and I doubt that. But you get the idea, and everybody could understand what they were saying. And so there was this, it was like this incredible moment of time, and it resembled Isaiah 6. When Isaiah is in the throne room of God, and it's the same imagery, it's the same uh, visuals that we get. The smoke fills God's throne room, and the train of his glory fills the throne room, and there is just light and angels and fire, and it's, 
And it's just, you can't, you can't process it from, with our human mind, the experience that they were experiencing. The same thing happens when, when they construct the tabernacle, that portable tent shrine that, uh, that, that housed the Ark of the Covenant, where the Holy of Holies was, where, you, where Moses went in and Aaron went in, and they encountered the presence of God, which again, was, it was the smoke, was this deep darkness, was, was also represented in fire, and, and, and it, this crazy stuff. And then once again, it happens in the temple, in Solomon's temple, when the temple is dedicated and all of a sudden the Spirit of God rushes into this building. This outpouring of the Spirit rushes into the building and the, the, the building is filled with, with, with smoke, mist, fire, what, who knows what. But it's the same exact experience. But now on the day of Pentecost, it's not done in a tabernacle. It's not done in a building. It's not done in the temple. It's not done in heaven. No, now, now it's done in people. And there is this huge shift. There is this notable shift from God's presence just only dwelling in a specific place. Now God's presence is dwelling in individuals that represent all nations. The world is changing. And Acts, which is... Yeah, it's, a, it's a combination of the Gospel of Luke and Acts. They were, they were basically the same work. They just separated them out. The Acts is, it is saying the world is changing. And back to this pace of Acts, it is it, like, it's so punchy. It's so fast. It's almost so violent. There is so much action that takes place in this book. And we read about the cities and the upheaval in the cities because the kingdom of heaven is being preached. And this very simple message of love is wrecking the entire society. And it's very similar to our society right now in that people are protesting, people are fighting, people are clubbing each other over the head for ideas. Simple ideas is driving people to gather in cities and protest. And this is what we see in the book of Acts. And again, it all stems from this experience of the day of Pentecost when God chose to use us as his temple. We're like little portable tent shrines. Wasn't that kind of cool? Like in here is the Holy of Holies. That's why the world changed. That's why it was so revolutionary. And it's as if all hell breaks loose in Jerusalem and on the early church. Like literally all hell breaks loose. Like there is a fight. It's going down. It's on like Donkey Kong. It is a rumble in the jungle. We have never seen spiritual warfare like this before. All hell breaks loose. It's like the devil realizes, oh my gosh, I just screwed that one up. This whole Jesus thing just sucker punched me. Let's just literally unleash the gates of hell because we are going to lose this thing unless we start fighting. And so he opens up hell, all of his demons, all of his principalities, everybody, everything, every evil thought that has power gets unleashed into Jerusalem. 
And they start contending and they start fighting for cities. Entire cities are at stake. That's why. That's why the angels are saying, what in the world are you idiots looking at? You need to get busy. All hell is coming at you right now. The devil is super ticked off. He knows he's lost. This is his last ditch effort to kick some holes in in God's house. He's defeated, but he's not going out without blooding some noses. So you guys just need to quit quit your spiritual gazing and get busy. That's what's going on. It's actually very exciting. It's, 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 it is so exciting the way that Acts just takes off like a, like a rocket ship. Jesus told the guys before he left, he says, you know what? I'm going to empower you. John came with his message of repentance. It's a really good message, right? You know that's a good message, huh? Like, the guy in Los Angeles with his bullhorn, he's telling us that message. He's like, you guys need to repent of your sins. Don't go to hell. Repent of your sins. It's a great message. And we all need to hear it. We all need, we all need to experience that godly sorrow of repentance, and we need to change the way we think. We need to turn towards God. We need to lean into God. It, it is this, it's vital and it's crucial that we live the repentant life and the repentant message. But it is a momentary thing, everybody. It's momentary. Your repentance should be momentary. Like your godly sorrow. Oh my gosh, I'm an idiot. I have messed up. I have sinned. God, forgive me of my sin. And he does, and you should be free. Right? Like the, the repentance message is, is, is key. It's It's vital. But it's nothing compared to Jesus' message of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's almost so trivial that he actually gives it to John to preach and not him. It's like, all right, you know what? Repentance is so important. And Jesus is like, repentance is so important. The people need to repent of their sins. But you know what? I'm going to delegate this one to, to John, the greatest guy that's ever lived. Because I, I feel confident that he can handle the repentant message. Because I'm going to focus on the kingdom of heaven in you. Yeah. Jesus delegated that, that, that message to John. And so we are to step into this message of Jesus' message, the kingdom of heaven. And the apostles did it. Peter does it. It's, you know, again, once Jesus says, okay, you need to get the kingdom of heaven inside of you. You need to be baptized in fire. You've been baptized in John's baptism, the baptism of water. But I am now going to baptize you in fire. I'm going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. You receive this baptism, and then you will be able to do, this is, this is the sign of a good God, by the way, you will be able to do what I did, and then some. Not just, you know what, you receive my baptism, and you'll be able to do what I did, maybe if you're lucky. But no, Jesus is so good. God is so good. He has so much in mind for his children. He says, yeah, you're going to do it, and then some. That's what a good father does, by the way. A good father will say, you know what, son, you're going to outdo me someday. Instead of an insecure father that says, you know what, I'm going to just put my thumb on my kid because I'm insecure and I don't want them to outdo me. 
Now, see, a good father will say, I want the best for you. God's got a destiny for you. You're going to outdo me. That's what good dads do, by the way. And so that's what Jesus does. He says, you're going, to out, you're going to outdo the signs and wonders and miracles that I perform. And you might be thinking to yourself, oh, my gosh, that's that possible. I mean, I'm not even, like, I can't even pray for a cold and have it go away. Well, how in the world am I supposed to do this? And I can't even raise the dead. The only person in the room that's raised anybody from the dead is Pastor Larry here. And he has. And it has been documented. So praise Jesus. It can be done. Don't tell me it can't be done. I got weird, huh? It's true. It's true. Get the book, The Day I Died by Steve Shogren. Get the book. It'll blow your mind. Peter, right out of the gate. I mean, Peter, the guy, the biggest knucklehead all of them all. The biggest, I mean, really, Peter. Everybody was being healed. Remember I said all hell's unleashed on Jerusalem because it's the, it's the game changer? No, no, evil spirits. Like maybe we have some, I don't know. No, you don't understand the level of demonic activity in Jerusalem right after this. Huge amounts. And here's the amazing thing. Peter's mere presence of walking in the room and evil spirits just flee. They just go away. They just, they just can't even stand the aura of his presence because he's so filled with the Holy Spirit. They just, they just fade away. And in fact, Peter's very own shadow heals people. Jesus never did that. <laughs> Isn't that cool? They got a hold of Paul's. This is even weirder. They got a hold of Paul's handkerchiefs, like his snot rags. It's gross. Like somebody snuck into church after he was done preaching. They'd take his rags and then go rub it on some sick person. But Paul's not even there and he gets healed by somebody's, by his, by his, it's gross, by his snot. Like Paul's snot heals people. <laughs> Jesus never does that. I don't have theology for Paul's th- snot, right? <laughs> I don't have a theology for shadows that cast and heal physical bodies. I just know that it's in the word of God, and I just know what Jesus said that we are to do. And it is because of Pentecost, when they all get baptized with this fire, when they all become these portable tent shrines, when they become, when, what does the Bible say? That your body is the temple now. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not this big black cube that we call Granite Creek. He shows up in little cool flashy lights every once in a while. I don't understand it. I don't have theology for that either. Right? But you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Salvation is good, but it's just not good enough is what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of heaven is what's good enough. I don't know. If you want to just like do enough to get by to go to heaven, I don't know. There's lots of churches that preach that, and they're good. I just, I don't know. I'm already going to heaven. Do you have the assurance of salvation, by the way? This is a tough one. How do you know if you're really saved? How do you know if you're going to heaven? Well, have you almost died? Here's a a telltale sign. Have you almost died? Like, you know, you almost get hit by a car or whatever. I I did something dumb once. (laughs) Once. 
Um, I, was, I was in Eastern Europe by myself buying antiques, and I ended up in a little town called Dietchen on the Czech-German um, border. And <laughs> so stupid. I'm like asking people around in broken German if they know where the antique dealers are in town. And they, they'd lead me to this guy. And I knock on the door in broken German trying to say, hey, I want to buy some stuff. So he's like, Ugh. and so And so he brings me in, unlocks the door, a couple of locks. And I go inside. And it's like, eh, yeah, I don't like this. I don't like this. I just don't know you understand. I want art. I want good art, and I want really good antiques. I don't want the, this. This is cute, but I don't. I don't want the the tourist stuff. I'm looking after the real stuff. And he's like, ah. And so he goes to this back room, and he draws me into this back room, and um, he. <laughs> He begins to unlock locks, one, two, three, and then deadbolts, and then he opens up this door, and then I, I go in this dark room, and then when my eyes begin to adjust to the darkness, there's like all this Nazi stuff, and there's this bust of Hitler, and there's uniforms, and, and machine guns, and, and, and paraphernalia, I'm like, uh, I better not tell this guy my last name, and, uh, and I'm like, uh. And so he's just rattling, you know, he's just talking in German. I don't understand. I took four years of German, completely useless. I have no idea what he's saying. And uh, I'm like, okay, I like, I like this, I like this. And I said, I'm looking for something special. And he's like, ah. He opens up his drawer. He pulls out a Luger. He points it in my face. And he's like, hey, Luger, ex super. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And the adrenaline hits my body, right? The whole flight or fight response, and then my reason kicks in. It's like, oh my gosh, he's going to shoot me in the face, and no one's ever going to know where I'm at. No one knew where I was at. That's how stupid I am. No one knew where I was at. And then the peace of God that transcends all understanding. I know logically that I'm going to die. At least that's what I thought was going to happen. And the peace of God hit me, and, and I'm like, oh. After the whole fear rush, the, the adrenaline, oh, I'm good to go, right? I'm good to go. All right, Lord, let's do this thing. Sorry for drinking too much the other night, but let's do this thing, right? Yeah? This was before I was Pastor Josh. It was, <laughs> all right. Oh, he was trying to sell me the Luger. It was the most prized possession that he had. It was a German Luger. It was probably about 4000 bucks. I didn't buy it. I bought some other painting. I'm like, just get me out of here as fast as I can. That's how you know you're saved. When you have the peace of God, the assurance of salvation. If you're insecure about your salvation, like hit your knees, folks. Like really, just hit your knees. And then go after the kingdom of heaven. Go after Jesus' message and not John's. All right. I have to talk about Paul's conversion because it's a big deal. There's a lot of amazing stories in, um, in Acts. But Paul changed the world. And we need to know why. And we need to know what was at stake. Saul... If you know the story, he was 
He was the man. He was the Jewish authority. The power, the control, the religion. He was he epitomized the religious spirit that wanted to put down the gospel message of hope and and peace. Like Paul was insecure about his culture and his society being destroyed. Because he was all in. Like he's like, I am, and he even says it uh, in Philippians. He says, I, I was the Hebrew of all Hebrews. I am, I am the, the best Jew that's ever been as far as the law goes. I was zealous as far as keeping the Torah. I am perfect. He was the model Jew, and he was not, he probably volunteered for the position to persecute the early church because the way that the revolution was taking place, it was threatening culture. You ever feel like your culture's being threatened? Like maybe in our current political situations right now, it feels like our way of life is under attack, right? We all feel this. It's the conversations that they're having right now on the news. And Paul's culture and society, his identity was under attack, being threatened. He probably volunteered to persecute churches. I am 100% convinced that he was responsible for Stephen's death. He, he's a killer. He killed him. And he was, he was, it says, he was breathing murderous phrases. His language was very destructive. So it was like, it was us against them. And so he was out to kill them all and to persecute them, to shut down this rebellion, to shut down this attack on, on the Jewish culture. Possessed, most likely. Like, you don't have that type of hatred and that type of anger and rage unless, unless you've got some evil thing working inside of you. Well, I don't know about that. We're pretty capable of doing evil things on our own, aren't we? Some of us don't need devils to inspire us to do evil. Meanwhile, while Saul was still breathing out murderous threats, this is chapter 9, against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked for letters, heading off to Damascus, uh, verse 4, he fell, okay, so he's on his way to Damascus. He neared Damascus on his journey. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? So the very experience of light changed his perspective on who Jesus was. This is a man of principle. This is a man of virtue. This is a man of convictions. When you have principle, you will fight for it. When you think you know what truth is, you're willing to die for it. Just ask a really good Muslim. Like they have, whatever you think about terrorists, obviously they're evil and possessed, but they are people of principle. They believe their words so much that they take it literally. Paul was this person that was so dedicated. He took it literally. He took truth literally. And so when, the, when glory shined on him, 
when he, this is an experience with Jesus, by the way, when he experiences the truth, because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that light of God shines on him, truth that he had been searching for his entire life. Within a second, he realizes who Jesus is, and he calls him Lord, you are everything that I have been looking for and searching for my entire life. Within just a millisecond, the speed of light hits Paul and he knows who he is. He knows what truth is. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you have been persecuted, he replied. Now, get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard a sound from heaven, but they did not see anything. Saul got up from the ground. When he opened up his eyes, he couldn't see anything. The, the, the truth blinded him. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called him in a vision. Ananias. God's going to call you. He's going to call each and every one of you. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He's got good stuff for you in mind. And it will come to you in vision. Sometimes in night seasons. Sometimes just in everyday life. Sometimes you're reading the words. And for the first time, it's no longer letters on a page. It's vision. Yes, Lord, he answered. That's usually a good response. (laughs) Go to the house of Judas on the straight street. I love that. I don't know why I like that so much. The straight street. The answers for you are on the straight street, folks. The, The straight and narrow path. Get on straight street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, that's you, come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Jesus, really? Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to Ananias, go. You need to quit looking at the bottom of my feet. Go. This man is chosen, and he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went into the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord... Jesus, who appeared to you on the road when you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and, what? And be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He's already been saved. He's already declared Jesus as his Lord, right? He's already received Paul's baptism. He's already received repentance. And now here's act two. He begins to get healed. The scales fall from his eyes. 
he got up and he was baptized. He took some food and strength, and then he went into a long season of discipleship where he begins to learn and grow and get into a deeper relationship with Jesus. Now, we all love Paul. I want to know about Ananias because he, if, if he's anything like me, thank God he was obedient because I just don't like people sometimes. And I judge like, I think that this is probably the, one of our biggest problems is because immediately, whenever we walk into an environment, whenever you meet somebody for the very first time, it is our biology. It is the way that we have evolved. We automatically, within a millisecond, we can judge somebody. And we make up a determination of what they are like and whether we can trust them as a friend or whether we treat them as an enemy or maybe as a mate. You know, just our, our basic carnal knowledge comes into play whenever we see somebody. And a lot of us just chalk it up as spiritual discernment when actually we are being deceived. Could you imagine if Ananias would have been like, you know what, Lord, I hear you, but my spiritual discernment says this is a foe. And I ain't doing it. I mean, look, I've done this. I've probably done this more than I should, where I just don't go into relationship with somebody because I just don't, I have a hinky feeling, like, right? And it's just not God. Could, look, you're saved. If you're not, we'll take care of it later. But you're saved. You're going to heaven, right? Good for you. But maybe your rude Uncle Bob is not, right? We, we all have that one family member, right? They're just not. They're, you just know they're not going to heaven, right? Or whoever the person is at work, they're just not going. And they don't deserve to go. In fact, you don't want them to go. <laughs> right? And the Lord has given you an assignment to minister to so-and-so. And you're like, you know what, Lord, I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to come up with a really good spiritual excuse not to do that, and you don't do it. But guess what? You aren't the first person that God has called to minister to that individual, and you're not the last. God's will, we know this for certain, that God's will is that every creature, every person, every soul comes to the knowledge and the grace of of our Lord and Savior. Everybody on the planet gets it. Even if you're stuck on an island all by yourself, somehow you're going to get a revelation of who Jesus is and you get to make a choice. Whether a missionary shows up or not, everybody has the choice to choose truth, to choose the way, to choose life. We all get the option. So you get the opportunity to be God's hands and feet and to take part and to, yeah, I mean, get a, get a you know, jewel in your crown. I don't want a jewel in my crown. I don't like that guy, right? So, but here's the thing. So salvation is a free gift. Everybody gets it. But there's only certain things that you are destined to do. And if you don't do them, they're never going to get done. So you don't have to carry the weight of everybody's salvation on your shoulders. You're not Jesus. Thank God for that. But God's expression, his unique expression in his creation that he wants to do through you, that is your assignment. If you don't do it, it doesn't get done. Could you imagine if Ananias did not fulfill his unique destiny? Would Paul, 
would Paul minister to the Gentiles? Would Paul be in house arrest right under Caesar's nose, right under Nero's rose nose, completely changing and transforming the Roman culture, undermining the whole thing? Would Paul have, would he, would he, would he like Christians if Ananias would have been rude to him, right? See, Ananias was given the assignment to love the unlovable guy. And I guarantee it, Paul was unlovable. If you read it, if you read his letters, he's a, you either love him or you hate him. You either want to hug him and kiss him or stone him to death. That's just the type of personality that he was. He was the unlovable person. And Ananias, God is calling Ananias to love the unlovable, and he does it, and he lays his hands and he imparts onto him and he baptizes him and Paul gets up and he is refreshed and he literally changes the world just because of Ananias' faithfulness and obedience to God's call in his life. That one thing. And so you have it. What is it? What's God called you to do? What's the one thing? Yeah, what is it? Who's your mark? Who's your assignment? Are you too busy gazing into heaven, looking at the bottom of his feet, uh, filling your time with religious practices when you ought to be a rebel? Like the whole society, our whole society is in turmoil. We have protesters. We have movements. We have the whole world's being churned up. Greenpeace understands that there is a huge sense of urgency and they're on the street protesting. The Democrats understand that the game is up. There's a huge sense of urgency. They're on the street, they're protesting. The human rights activists and social activists, they know that they're, they're, the, the time is short. There's, they know that there's a lot at stake. They're on the streets, they're protesting and the American church is not. Where are we? The Syrian church is active. The Chinese church is active. No, they get it. See, they have this spirit of Acts that's like, again, it's on. It is on like Donkey Kong. Everybody gets it but us. Everybody gets it. You see, there is this sense of urgency in the book of Acts. There is this assignment to just to be a part of culture as the, as the body of Christ. We, they called it the way back then. Before they were called Christians, they were called people of the way, W-A-Y. And these people of the way, like they were the ones that were, that were in the center squares protesting. Not really protesting, they were just loving on people. They weren't pushing their agenda. They were getting beat for, for loving people. And when Paul heads off to the Ephesians, where is it? Ephesians is coming up pretty soon. It's going to be an amazing talk. But uh, chapter 9, when Paulus, uh, Apollos, not Paul, Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took through the road to the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul's on the road. He's come out of his season of prayer and discipleship. He's paid his dues. He's been to Bible boot camp. He is now on the road. He is shaking things up because somebody like Ananias loved him. That's why. 
He's talking to these guys. He says, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, when you felt the conviction, when you heard the guy with the bullhorn that says, repent, for the time is near? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you made that decision? Right? Did you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered him, no, we, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. This is so true. And this is true in our, in our setting as well. There are entire Christians that have no grid of the theology of the Holy Spirit. They don't know who he is. He's like the redheaded stepchild of the Trinity. No one likes him. No one wants to deal with him. He's kind of weird. He makes people feel uncomfortable. No one wants to have the Holy Spirit in the room. No, they said. John's bap, excuse me. So Paul, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Again, there's that baptism of repentance. Good thing. Let's all do it. John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is, in Jesus On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, just like they did at the day of Pentecost. This was a reoccurring thing, folks. It was not a one-time deal. It was not a one-time shot. This is something that perpetuated itself over and over and over again, even into this day. They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. And there were about 12 men in all. This is, in Ephesus, it talks later in this, in this story, it talks about these guys that were now believed but were now baptized. They began to change the culture of Ephesus. The riots broke out, but this time the riots were economic. Because there was so much hope, there were so many people were coming into the knowledge and the grace of Jesus that they were shedding off all of their religious garbage and they quit buying their little idols to Artemis, these little silver idols. And the guy that was making the silver idols, he rallies up some thugs to beat up Christians because, he's com- because these people of the way have messed up the whole system. They've taken the idols out of people's lives that was costing them money, that was costing them time, that was tricking them into believing that they were safe when they were not, to giving them hope and ecstasy and fulfillment and purpose. It's kind of like an iPhone. Could you imagine? Could you imagine what Apple would do if all the Christians in the world Quit buying their iPhones. Quit buying the products. Somebody said coffee, but that's blasphemy. (laughs) And that's just, I'm not going to receive that word. The Bible says that I can spit out any, you know, I get to judge prophecy, and coffee is not an idol. I don't care what you say. But could you imagine if, see, see, their lifestyle It was just their very simple lifestyle disrupted the whole economy. How mind 
mind-boggling is that? Is our Christian lifestyle making an dent in our economy, or we're just contributing to it? Can you live in such a way where you can give away your idols? That's tough, huh? Again, look, it is this pace. It is this rhythm. It is this sense of urgency that the, the people of Acts just really tapped into. Knock down, drag out, fight with the gates of hell. And we win. We win. And just when the enemy thinks that he's got a foothold, hey, we got Paul in prison. (laughs) He's in prison in Rome influencing Caesar's household. Come on. Right? God is so sneaky. Look, the, the difficulties that we're going through that you're going through, how can God use that in a sneaky way to advance the kingdom of heaven in your life? Really? We get persecuted, and we just think that we're... I'm going to quit going to church. I just got persecuted. Paul's like, yes! I got persecuted! (laughs) I'm not there yet, folks. I'm just not there. Again, if you heard last week's message, he had the mind of Christ. He was able to look at each and every situation. He was able to look at each and every single person, because Ananias did this with him, and find the gold and then minus the, the junk. He was able to not judge, but to be strong. He could stand up for his rights. He did it. He's amazing at this, actually. I mean, he fought the religious. He fought the secular. He actually went toe-to-toe with the Epicureans and the Stoics at the, at the, uh, in, in Athens, in the, the Oregopolis. And he was so convincing and compelling and exciting to hear about that even the Stoics are like, I'm kind of excited about that. <laughs> and the Epicureans are like, yeah, I want to get drunk on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> All right, I'm done. Let's get Ban and the ushers to come to the front. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you just continue to meet us where we are at. Your grace is sufficient for each and every single person here. And you know where we're at. And you are such a good and loving God that you want the best for us. So, Heavenly Father, I just pray that we will move beyond the base basics of salvation and repentance and we will move into the advanced stuff of the kingdom of heaven what Jesus really wants for us God I pray that you give us the ability just to change our mindset and even our reality that we are in a fight and we are in a fight to the death at times not physically but spiritually everything's at stake right now our families are at stake our kids are at stake our marriages are at stake And we need to face it with this tenacity that the early church fathers had. This urgency that the early early church has. And we know that we cannot do it unless we receive that baptism of fire by you. 
So God, right now, we just pray that the Holy Spirit comes in. We're okay with the redheaded stepchild. God, we know that it is him and it is through him and that it is in him that we will gain our strength and our confidence and our ability to just change the world. So Heavenly Father, give us the courage to quit looking and staring into space, looking at the bottom of your feet or gazing into crowds when there's a broken and hurting world that desperately needs to hear the good news. So give us the ability to share that good news today. Move us into deeper levels of prayer. Get us into the upper room, waiting patiently on the outpouring of your spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen.